Hey, how's everybody doing today? My name is Christian Wagner and I'm the Militant Thomist. So today I'm going to be <clears throat> talking about um, the relationship between faith and works in, in St. Thomas. And this is a very important discussion because it seems that from what I've seen in a lot of, I don't know if Papa, Papa Catholic, Papa, Pop Catholic apologetics is is the right term, but that's just the one I'll use. In in pop apologetics, what you'll see surrounding the discussion about faith and works in um, in Catholic thought versus in Protestant thought, that's not something. It, the readings aren't the best. Let, let's just put it there. But I think Saint Thomas is going to shed a lot of light on this question that is going to give us a more rigid exegesis of these terms and their usage in St. Paul and St. James especially. And it's also going to give us something which is rigidly Catholic in their theology behind this um, this rigid exegesis that's, that's given especially by St. Thomas. So going back before all of these uh, Reformation-era debates over these terms and over the interpretation of these of these sections of sacred scripture. I think that sheds a lot of light for us to be able to have more informed discussions and to give something which is much more satisfying when we're reading these terms and can answer some of the rightful objections that are brought up by Protestant exegetes against um, the way in which uh, pop Catholics can often read sacred scripture. So I'm actually going to be reading a section from St. Thomas's commentary on Romans and explaining some of the terminology throughout. St. Thomas has a very nuanced discussion and very nuanced reading of uh, the term works through throughout the New Testament. But before we get into that, um, if you're really enjoying what I'm doing, make sure you become a patron at patreon.com slash militantthomist. And then also, um, if you go to christianbwagner.com slash shop, yeah, shop, you can, and in the links below, you can get access to, well, you can buy some of the books that I've reprinted and, um, also, the Militant Thomas mug, which I do not have on me because I am on vacation right now and I didn't bring my my mug, unfortunately. And then also, if you would like to get better exegetical skills, make sure you go to um, FluentGreekNT.com. And that's a very helpful resource when it comes to learning Greek. And if you use the code Militant, you can get 20% off. So let's get right into it. Sorry if I'm a bit slow today. I've not been sleeping well recently. The night shift, it's the worst, which is why you should become a patron. That's what I'll have to work the night shift. Although working at night is the best thing ever. I love it. It's, I have a love-hate relationship with it. Okay, so this is going to be on Romans 3, 21 through 26. So I'll just read the section. And this is, I think, the Dewey Reams translation. Whatever the Vulgate has. Well, Dewey Reams is basically just the Vulgate in English. But now without the law, the justice of God is made manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So notice here, this 
the law and the works are going to play a big role in this section. Even the justice of God by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all those who believe in him, for there is no distinction. For all sin and do need the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is going to be, these next few verses are going to be very important when it comes to our theology of faith in relationship to the righteousness of Christ, whom God has uh, proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to the showing of his justice for the remission of former sins through the forbearance of God for the showing of his justice in this time that he himself may be just and justifier of him who is of the faith of Jesus Christ. And um, just a, a few brief comments just on the reading of this section. This section is often brought up to me uh, when, when I have these discussions about Catholic soteriology with Protestants. And this is seen as the uh, the sort of definitive passage, the uh, the locus classicus, when it comes to Protestant readings of of justification. And of course, this is a very important section within Saint Paul's Epistle to the Romans. But I think there are a lot of things <clears throat> which are taken for granted, such as um, the meaning of justice. Um, the meaning of righteousness, the meaning of propitiation, the meaning of faith, the meaning of works, the meaning of law. There's a lot of uh, things that are taken, um, that are assumed within Protestant readings of this text. And I don't think that many of the Catholic authors that I've seen, well, read, and uh, the more pop level people who are speaking of passages like this, I think they kind of miss the point um, in in all uh, humility and charity. They completely miss the point of this passage. And um, rather than reading it for what it is, um, this is taken as um, a section which needs damage control from Protestant readings of this text. And uh, those who I'm talking about don't really recognize that there is equivocation happening with some of these terms and that a right um, discussion of the definition of some of these terms and uh, Protestant versus Catholic usages of these terms would clear up the reading of this passage without um, some of the more crazy um, exegetical gymnastics that often occurs within Catholic readings of texts like these in Romans, because there's a few of them. So, so let's get right into it. And I won't um, read all of these, uh, all of these organizational markers by Thomas. So after showing that Jews and Gentiles are equal as far as the state of previous guilt is concerned. So up to this point, um, which I'm sure everybody can agree upon that before uh, 321, this is about the, uh, the sin of the, the Jews and Gentiles and uh, that everybody is guilty and put under the law. This is the, the so-called bad news that has occurred. And uh, that is the basically the traditional Protestant reading too. So the apostle now shows that they are also equal as far as the state of subsequent grace is concerned. So this, um, this discussion of subsequent grace is where the disagreement is going to start happening. So... In stating his teaching, this is how he's going to um, outline this passage right here. So he states the 
his teaching and then he manifests it and then he draws the intended conclusion and then in stating the teaching he states the relation between justice and the law the second he gives the cause of justice and even the justice of god third he shows that such justice is available to all so first he sets down a twofold comparison or relation of justice to the law so the first is that it is not caused by the law so justice not caused by the law which is going to be very important because um, in a lot of catholic readings of this passage they're gonna try to wiggle out of this conclusion and say that justice is actually caused by the law this is what he says it has been stated that in times past god's justice could not exist in virtue of the works of the law either because the just one himself fulfills the precepts about man's justification, for I say that Christ was minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, or rather God's justice, by which a person is justified by God, of which it says below, not knowing the justice of God. This justice of God, I say, is now, i.e., in the time of grace, made manifest by the teachings of Christ, by his miracles as well as by the evidence of the fact, inasmuch as it is evident that many have been divinely made just, in this without the law, without the law concerning justice. You are severed from Christ, you have been justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Soon my salvation will come and my justice will be revealed. He's going to get into uh, ways in which some of these terms of justice and law are defined. So, unless anyone suppose that this justice is contrary to the law, second, he sets down another relation of justice to the law when he says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law bears witness to Christ's justice by foretelling and prefiguring it. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me and also by its effect, for since it could not justify, it bore witness that justice was to be sought elsewhere. The prophets bore witness by foretelling it. To him all the prophets bear witness. Then he assigns the cause of this justice, and says the justice of God is through the faith of Christ Jesus, that is, which he delivered, looking to Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, or which is held concerning him, for if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. God's justice is said to exist through faith in Christ Jesus, not as though by faith we merit being justified, as if faith exists from ourselves and through it we merit God's justice, as the Pelagians assert. But because in the very justification by which we are made just by God, the first motion of the mind towards God is through faith. Whoever would draw near to him must believe. Hence, faith as the first part of justice is given to us by God. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, for it is the gift of God. So right here, a few important notes in this paragraph. So right here, it is not through faith we merit being justified. As if faith exists from ourselves and through it we merit God's justice. So he's right here denying that um, that faith is something by which God owes us by strict justice. And um, the and the reality of Thomas's view of, of merit is going to be that it's something which is only meritorious insofar as God has bound himself to these means. For example, um, baptism. Baptism is only efficacious because God has bound himself to baptism and to the sacraments. 
it, there's um, quote nothing special. Um, it not it, there's nothing special about it, naturally speaking. So, um, and then also the way in which uh, faith is said to be uh, meritorious is that God has uh, appointed faith as that instrument by which we receive justification. But um, in discussions with Protestants, we'll have we have a, a bit of equivocation when it comes to this term justification. And um, St. John Henry Newman is very uh, helpful when it comes to this phrase of justification, because uh, under a Protestant view of justification and the meaning of justice and God's justice, it's going to be something which strictly in justification is the the merit of Christ, which is outside of us. And uh, when it comes to uh, especially this this momentary um, beginning of justification, it's going to be something which is legal. It's going to be uh, the for, not only the forgiveness of our sins, which is negative, which Catholics would absolutely agree upon, but also um, the positive uh, meriting of righteousness, uh, which is which is for us. <clears throat> but we we're thinking of the justice of God. Because St. Thomas, in his discussion of justice right here, this would be very odd language for most Protestants to understand. Because <clears throat> when he's talking about the justice of God, he means the righteousness of Christ, which is not outside of us, but it's the righteousness of Christ, which is simultaneously above us and in us, or um, so-called infused righteousness. Although that's not the most helpful term, because it's not really our righteousness in, in the sense that it's not from us, but it's something which is from Christ and given to us, in us. So uh, thinking about merit and works and law, this is, this is a much more helpful framework to start the discussion is in, that faith is that receiving of the inchoate righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ outside, um, above us, yet not outside of us, but in us. Okay, and then going on to discuss the nature of faith. This is this is going to be a little bit surprising. But this faith, out of which justice exists, is not the unformed faith about which James says, faith without works is dead, but it is faith formed by charity. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything without faith, through which Christ dwells in us, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, which does not happen without charity. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. This is the faith about which it is said he cleansed their hearts by faith, a cleansing that does not occur without charity. So this paragraph right here, very important. Um, so there's a distinction which is made in, uh, in Catholic theology between um, fides infor, is it informis? Fides informis and fides formata. Fides informis or unformed faith is um, it, from a Protestant point of view would be uh, what's called historic, merely historical faith. So it's the kind of faith that uh, Satan and his devils have. It's faith which exists in the ascent of the mind to, to the propositions of faith, but does not ascend to the fides formata or the formed faith insofar as um, faith is mixed with love or really faith is made alive by charity. 
And fides formata can be thought of in uh, in the Protestant uh, point of view as fiduciary faith. Um, those are kind of um, they're analogous, but obviously there's not a a one to one correlation between the two. So when when um, Saint Thomas reads James two twenty six two twenty six, which is kind of a uh, it's a locus classicus when it comes to um, not really classicus, more like locus moderna when it comes to uh, discussions of these sorts. Because uh, the way in which the Catholic is going to, well, at least the pop Catholic, as as I've seen them, have approached James 2.26 and James 2 in general, is that when when, uh, St. James is speaking of works, he's talking about uh, the fact that you don't only need to have faith. In, in God, but you need to add these works of, of charity to it. You need to feed the sick. You need to clothe the naked. You need to, you need to do all of these, these works of justice to add on to faith. But St. Thomas is going to read this completely differently than those pop Catholics. And the way in which he's reading James 2.26, which is in much better alignment with the, with the context of, of the epistle of James is he's talking about um, two species of the genus faith. Is that one, when, when he speaks of works, by works he means charity, not um, outward um, works of the law, so to speak. Is that it's really um, distinguishing two types of faith rather than distinguishing um, faith and then faith plus works. He's distinguishing faith which is um, uninformed by charity than faith which is informed by charity. So that's very important. And then also um, when he speaks about the nature of the the righteousness of Christ and the effects of justification, um, rather than something which is which is extranos um, in the initial point of justification, the the formal cause or the the grounds for our justification is going to be. Christ who dwells in us, and then um, through the instrumentality of formed faith. Which notice this is this whole discussion. Um, it's nothing of this is is faith plus works, because um, because justification is not by the works of the law, it's not by our own justice, but the the grounds of our justice is Christ dwelling in us. It's the righteousness of Christ actualized in us and made present to us. It's really, it's really um, a more mystical uh, sort of a conception of justification, and not the um, the more crude uh, pop uh, ways of speaking of justification, which is um, which isn't. Uh, I won't call it uh, heretical, but it definitely is uh, lacking. So let's keep going. Unless anyone suppose that only the Jews are made just through this faith, third, he shows that this justice is common when he adds unto all. In other words, this justice is in the heart, not in fleshy observances. Notice, not in fleshy observances, about which Hebrews say that carnal observances were directed to the justification of the flesh, being regulations for the body and imposed until the time of ref, uh, reformation. 
and upon all because it transcends human power and merit. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything coming from Christ. So notice, this justice transcends human power and merit because it is Christ's justice in us, not our own justice. As some, uh, what what Newman calls the the extreme Roman authors say. So he adds, who believe in him, which refers to the living faith by which man is justified, as has been said. Then when he says, for there is no distinction, he manifests what he had said. First, in regard to the common availability of justice. Second, as to its cause at being justified freely. Third, as to its manifestation as to the showing of justice. First, therefore, he says, it has been stated that the justice of God is in all and above all who believe in Christ. For in this manner, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In Christ Jesus, there is not Gentile and Jew, namely, who has some distinction. As though the Jew does not need to be made just by God as the Gentile does. For all have sinned, as has been shown above, and for this reason need the glory of God. That is the justification that redounds to God's glory. Furthermore, man should not ascribe this glory to himself, not to us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name of glory. Consequently, because all have sinned and cannot of themselves be justified, they need some other cause to make them just. This cause he indicates when he continues being justified. So this is another section where we're going to get really into the meat of the of the discussion especially around law and works and grace and, and charity and, and righteousness. So first he shows that such justification exists without the law. That is, it, that it does not come from the works of the law. When he says being justified freely, that is, without the merit of previous works. You are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. And that this is by his grace, namely to God's whom glory is due on his account. On this account, notice that it's without the law, and he defines that it does not come from the works of the law, and that being justified freely without the merit of previous works. So, our justice, which is um, based on the righteousness of Christ in us, is not something uh, which exists with the merit of previous works. Although, um, strictly here, he's speaking about. Um, what's called initial justification ra rather than generally the uh, the state of justification, broadly speaking. Like um, when, when we're thinking about merit, um, merit is something which, which is not by natural justice, but it's by um, covenantal justice that God has bound himself to certain means. And when we're talking about meriting uh, further justification, we just, all we mean by that is that, um, the the righteousness of Christ in us is is obviously uh, something which is sufficient, but it is not exhaustive. Like we don't we don't in in our justification uh, gain every scrap of righteousness that we possibly could. That we we don't have the absolute perfection of Jesus Christ, but that is something positively which can grow and increase over time. And um, that that increasing of grace and of of righteous of actual righteousness is something which which happens um, by merit, but by that it just means that something um, uh, something which God has bound Himself to uh, in order to give us grace.
Okay. And then second, he shows what is the cause of justification. First, he discloses the cause itself when he says through the redemption. For as it has been said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. From this slavery, a man is redeemed if he makes satisfaction for sin. For example, if a man owes a king a fine for some guilty action, the one who paid the fine would now be said to have redeemed him from the debt. Now, this debt involved the whole human race, which was infected by the sin of the first parent. Hence, no other person could satisfy for the sin of the entire human race except Christ alone. He was immune from all sin. And notice the the uh, legal, um, juridical way of speaking when it comes to um, when it comes to uh, Christ as our penal substitute to atone for us. Let the reader, let the listener understand. Hence, he adds that is in Christ Jesus. As if to say, in no other could there be redemption. Second, he shows whence this redemption has efficacy, when he says, whom God has proposed to be a propitiation. For Christ's satisfaction was efficacious for justifying redeeming by the fact that God had assigned him to this in his plan, which he designates when he says, whom God has proposed to be a propitiation, according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Or proposed, that is, he put forward for all because the human race had no way of making satisfaction unless God himself gave them a redeemer and a satisfier. And so while making satisfaction, he redeems us from the debt of sin and obtain pardon for our sin, which the psalmist begged be propitious, propitious, I, I don't know, I'm pronouncing that word wrong, to our sins. And this is why he is called a propitiation. As a figure of this, it was commanded in Exodus that a propitiation, that is Christ, be placed on the ark, that is the church. And then notice um, right here, where where is it? And so while making satisfaction, he redeems us from the debt of sin and obtains pardon for our sins. So when it comes to um, those, those, uh, because Catholics can speak, uh, as as Saint Newman outlines, Catholics can speak of of there being imputation at the cross, and but this is restricted to um, to the debt of sin and pardon for our sins. That uh, Christ, in His death, um, suffered suffered for our sins, and that has to do with the negative aspect where uh, the debt of sin is taken away, which is the the guilt of sin is taken away. But when it comes to the positive aspects of righteousness, that is not something which is merely imputed, but it is something which is inchoate, as has been said above. I don't need to really explain that again. Okay, third, he indicates how the effect of redemption reached us when he says through faith in his blood, that is faith concerning his blood poured out for us. For in order to satisfy for us, it was fitting that he undergo the penalty of death for us, a penalty man had incurred by sin, as indicated in Genesis. But this death of Christ is applied to us through faith, by which we believe that the world has been redeemed by his death. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For even among men, payment made by one man does not benefit another, unless he considers it valid." And so it is clear how there is justification through faith in Christ Jesus, as has been stated above. It's important to notice that the object 
St. Thomas actually makes a very good argument here for um, a Catholic definition of faith, is that faith is really, um, is in this aspect that we believe that the world has been redeemed by his death. Notice this is not fiduciary in nature. This is something which is just the ascent of the mind to an objective fact. And that is that is faith, the ascent of the mind to the articles of faith. And uh, it's something which is either dead or um, in, uninformed, which would be uh, faith without charity or something which is informed and therefore uh, made efficacious. Okay, but because he had stated above that God's justice is manifested now, he considers this manifestation. First, he touches on the manner of this manifestation, saying to the showing, as if to, as if to say, I say that we are justified by the redemption of Christ and by faith in his blood, to the showing of his justice, that is, to the end that Christ might show his justice, and this for the remission of former sins. For in remitting former sins, which the law could not remit, or men by their own power sufficiently guard against. God showed that the justice by which they are made just by God is necessary for men. But only through the blood of Christ could sins both present and past be remitted, because the power of Christ's blood works through man's faith, which the man, uh, the men who lived before his passion had, just as we have, since we have the same spirit of faith, we do believe. Hence, another way of reading it is, for the remission of the sins of those men who preceded the passion of Christ. Okay, so remember again, remitting former sins. It's about remitting guilt through the blood of Christ. And then this, this may, uh, right here, because the power of Christ's blood works through man's faith. So this, uh, this gets into the instrumental nature of faith that um, in faith, we have we have something we have a redemption actually which is a bit um, more profound than is going to be seen in Protestant soteriology, um, at least when it comes to justification. Because I mean, in in the other other uh, the other parts of the Ordo Salutis, these these will come to bear. But just speaking uh, strictly of justification, because through through our faith. Um, there is a twofold effect. The um, in in Protestant theology, this twofold effect is going to be first the remission of sins or a certain negative aspect, and second the the positive imputation of the righteousness of Christ, the, the our legal justice, which is going to occur in this initial part of justification. But when it comes to Catholic theology, the negative aspect is basically the same that our sins are forgiven through faith, but also the, the power of Christ's blood affects um, not only um, a positive legal imputation of justice, but um, is, is, this is efficacious in us in that we actually have in our union with Christ that very righteousness which made Christ righteous. Okay, so further down. Second, he shows the time of its manifestation. Uh, we don't really need to go into this. 
okay, here, the reading of justice. So 30 shows that by remitting sins, God's justice is shown, whether it be taken as the justice of God by which he himself is just, or as the justice by which he justifies other others. Hence he continues that he himself may be just, that is, that by remitting sins, God may appear to be just in himself, both because he remitted sins as he had promised and because it belongs to God's justice to destroy sins by leading men back to his justice. So notice um, in us, in our justification, which is received through faith, sin is destroyed in us. It is, uh, it's not merely the guilt, but um, in the infusion of Christ's righteousness in us, in that infusion of grace, in that uh, mystical union which we have with Christ, um, the the theology of um, simul used to set peccator. I think that I've it's been it's been a while since I've been in uh, Protestant circles, um, properly speaking, at least. Um, it uh, so simul used to set peccator um, simultaneously just and sinful. That doesn't exist in Catholic soteriology, because God's justice in in our justification not only takes away guilt, but also takes away um, the actual stain of sin. So, so when we are filled with the righteousness of Christ, uh, there is that inability to also be filled with those that that sinfulness so sin is destroyed in us and that is the way in which we are regarded as meritorious because he actually makes us just and also the justifier of him who is of the faith of jesus christ that is who approaches god through faith in jesus christ whoever would draw near to god must believe so i hope that is helpful in reading that section especially um and that's about all um and if you're sending questions to the chat right now, I forgot to add that I'm I'm recording this at like, what time is it? 1.30 in the morning. And I just kind of post the video later if I know that I'm not going to be able to do a video in in the night um, when, when everybody's actually awake. So uh, if you're just spamming questions in the chat, I will not answer them because I cannot see this, see them. So that is about all. And remember to become a patron, subscribe, like, um, absolutely destroy that subscribe button and do penance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Lord.